0: Hello, and welcome to The Mastering Show. My name is Ian Shepherd. I'm a mastering engineer, and I run the Production Advice website aimed at helping you get the best results, recording, mixing, and mastering your music. And with me this week, as usual, is my co-host John Tidy from reaperblog.net. Hi, John. Hi, Ian. Hello, everyone. We also have a guest on this week's podcast. Uh, I'm sure some of you will have come across him before. Uh, In fact, he's a returning guest. It's Ian Stewart, who is a mastering engineer from Flowtown Mastering. Uh, He also writes for the Isotope blog these days, and he helped us out way back in an episode about stereo and and mid-side processing. So if you enjoy mind-bending episodes, that would be probably a good one to to start with. Um, Ian, welcome back. How are you doing? I'm doing very well, thanks. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming along and helping out, because um, the reason I've invited Ian on is to dig deep into this topic of Low end and particularly the phase of low end, the bass levels, and whether it's important for the bass to be mono or not. I don't know you guys. This is something I see almost every day online in recent years. It kind of it was something that nobody ever used to mention, and now you can't go a day without somebody offering advice to somebody. You know, for when you're mastering for vinyl to do with uh, with bass. Is that something you see, John?
1: Oh yeah, that's something I've seen and something I've probably given advice on as well, but, you know, in my conversations with you, I realize that's probably wrong, and even if you analyze vinyl rips, you'll find that there is definitely not mono bass all the time. Sometimes there's extreme bass, so, but it is a common thing, there's technical reasons why you should do that or shouldn't do that, but mostly don't touch your master in that way, I guess, unless unless you're the one cutting the vinyl yourself because they will take care of it unless you have permission yeah, you... <laughs> yeah. Con-
2: consent yeah. consent
0: is key consent that's the word
1: <laughs> if, if you're if you're doing a vinyl release and you're doing a custom master for that i think you need to be very experienced in doing that putting in the hours of trial and error just automatically cutting the lows may not be necessary
0: yeah that's pretty much where i'm at it i mean I've said this before, I'll say it again, I'm I'm not a vinyl cutting engineer, but uh, a ton of my uh, releases of work that I've done over the years has been released on vinyl, and I always get good feedback from the cutting engineers, but they're the experts, um, you know, and what they tell me is that pr- pretty much every lathe is different, and every release is different, and how it's going to, how you're going to get the best results on a particular lathe is going to depend. So you can't make any kind of blanket rules. You know, the, the kind of advice that I see is, oh, all the mo- bass should be mono from 200 hertz down. You know, genuinely, you see that. And it's, I mean, there there are important reasons why you need to be careful about the, the, the stereo image of uh, the bass on, certainly on vinyl, and I would say on CD as well, and we're going to talk about that. No way that everything below 200 hertz needs to be monoed. Um, I mean, in fact, actually, Ian, maybe you could give us a brief summary in terms of vinyl for why you have to be careful with the 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 bass the low end yeah totally um
2: I, first i was going to say I, I feel like you're lucky if people recommend 200 hertz i've seen 400 hertz 500 hertz which just gets crazy to me Oof. but um yeah so basically the way stereo is encoded on a piece of vinyl is as mid-side um, so, so rather than have a, a left channel or ch- right channel, you've actually got, um, lateral movement. So kind of back and forth across the surface of the record is the mid channel and then vertical movement kind of up and down, um, is the side channel. And so the, the main reasons that, you know, people talk about low end, low end obviously carries more energy than high frequencies, right? So, it stands the chance to have kind of higher excursions in the vinyl cut deeper or go higher. Um, and where it can get problematic is if you have like low frequency transients of some nature, um, you know, it can could actually pop the needle out of the groove potentially, um, and, and make it skip. Um, And and you know, there are kind of other associated tangential things that can happen. But that's kinda in a nutshell uh why you need to worry about it a little bit. Um, you know, the other part is if the cutter head tries to cut too deep and goes into right, you're cutting on a a lacquer, which is basically like a almost like a coat of nail polish on a, a metal disc. So if you just cut too deep and you, you know, bottom out the lathe, that's not great. So there is an element of needing to To control uh, how much level and and kind of transients and stuff, particularly with low end on the sides. But uh, like you were saying, Ian, it's it's very dependent on the lathe, on the music, on the length of the side, so many things. So it's really got to be up to the cutting engineer to figure out what's right
1: and what's needed there. Can can we jump in there with how does the length of the side determine how much bass there can be? I know this one.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Um, I mean, it's basically uh, you've only got a certain amount of physical space between the outer edge and the inner edge of the record. Um, And if you, say, only have to fit 15 minutes of play time between the outer edge and the inside edge on the – you know, the the speed of the turntable is fixed, 33 RPM for an album – Yeah, if you've only got to fit 15 minutes in, then you can use more space for the grooves than if you wanted to fit 20, 25 or even 30 minutes in. So basically, the more playing time you try and squeeze into that fixed amount of physical space on the disc, uh, the narrower the grooves have to be to avoid kind of bumping into each other. I mean, it's it's more complicated than that because they have uh, an analog computer in there that calculates how to best pack the grooves based on the running time and all the rest of it. Um, But yeah, basically the, the, the more space, the less time you have available, the more kind of wiggle room you have almost kind of literally. Um, So, and what that translates that to is loudness in terms of the, the, the level effectively that you can cut to the record. Um, If you're trying to pack more grooves, more running time into the same space, the grooves have to be more tightly spaced, which means the needle can move around less. So you're you're effectively cutting a quieter signal to the disc. Um, so yeah, one of the first things a cutting engineer is going to do is look at the running time and figure out what the optimal level for the music is going to be. I think it's worth kind of just recapping slightly what Ian said there, because I think it's useful to be able to visualize what's happening. The left to right, as you look at the the needle kind of moving in the cartridge, the lateral movement of the needle determining the, the the majority of the mono content, the, the left plus right, which is the, the mid content. And then there isn't actually left and right cut to the record because it's encoding the side signal, which is left minus right or the difference signal. That's the bit that cuts vertically into the record. So it kind of makes sense that if you had a very loud bass sound on one channel only of the record, the needle would be cutting down into the lacquer uh, much more aggressively, and that's why, yeah. If if the, yeah. if those kind of uh, excursions are too violent, that's how the needle can pop out, potentially. Right. Um, and the other in, kind of interesting tangent for me is that there's a there's a kind of popular misconception uh, that if you compress music too much, if it's too loud, then that can be bad for cutting vinyl. It is true that if the music is very heavily limited, that's not great for a vinyl cut. Um, but it's actually very dynamic bass levels that make this uh possible issue with the needle jumping out even more of a problem so back in the day when the Beatles wanted their releases cut as loud as Motown the solution was to buy a Fairchild compressor for Abbey Road Studios and experiment with it so that they could compress the bass more to control those bass transients that Ian was talking about to reduce the risk of the needle uh having tracking problems um and therefore be able to cut or make a louder cut
2: right and actually interestingly if you know if you look at plug-in emulations of a, a fair child now a lot of times you'll see you can switch it from left right to lat vert that's so that's lateral and vertical movement which is kind of i mean same thing as mid side ultimately but really that's because it was
0: designed for you know limiting uh, or, or compressing for vinyl absolutely um okay so we've done lots of talking about vinyl and we don't want to get too far down that rabbit hole because we could easily well we have done whole episodes about vinyl before and we there are probably more that we could do um but that's a hopefully that's a good explanation for people of why this stuff might matter but also as we've all said uh it's not something that's necessary i mean i guess it's worth bearing in mind you know the the to know that if you start doing extreme stereo panning or out of phase stuff with the bass let's say you're working in a genre like edm where you might want to get really creative with those kind of sounds that could potentially be a big challenge for the a cutting engineer if you want it released on vinyl, but that doesn't mean necessarily that if that's what you want to do creatively, you should then try and guess what a cutting engineer might or might not do with that, um, because yeah, it's a it's a really skilled job and it's best done by the person who's actually cutting the vinyl. I mean, they'll they'll actually do experiments, you know, and kind of examine the groove and. Uh, optimise everything they possibly can when it gets to that stage. I guess the other use case uh, where stereo base could be an issue is if you're uh, in a club uh, or any situation where there is a mono subwoofer handling the low frequency content, which usually only means from about 80 hertz down. Um, but in that situation, if you, I mean, for example, if you had something that was complete antiphase in the, the low end, then when that gets added together and sent off to the subwoofer, um, it's going to disappear completely. So the the thing that sounded huge and bassy and impressive in your studio is going to sound completely underwhelming uh, played back on a system that only has a mono sub. So that would be one more situation where this could be a problem. But yeah, the main reason people talk about this stuff is for vinyl cutting. And in that case, uh, you know, the cutting engineer is going to help you through that. Um, and by the way, I've said this before as well, but if the plant are not that keen on you speaking directly to the cutting engineer as far as i'm concerned that could be an indicator that maybe you want to think about using somewhere else that will because it's exactly those kind of conversations that kind of communication that is going to enable you to get the best possible results with a vinyl cut um and if if they're not happy for that to happen it's possible that maybe they don't have a dedicated cutting engineer or it's much more of an automated process than an interactive process Um, and that's where i think you know you might end up with results on vinyl that you're not as happy with as you should be. So that's quite a lot of detail about technical reasons that you might want to at least think carefully about extreme stereo panning or kind of extreme phase in the low end, uh, in the bass region on a master. Um, But I mean, there are also artistic considerations John, can you think of examples where you've heard kind of extreme bass panning or phase stuff that you've thought, yeah, that absolutely works? Because I, for me, I feel like often it's not really something that you want. Do you agree with that?
1: There can be times when it sounds good, like as part of an experience and and maybe have like this sort of like pulsing, unnerving, like kind of tilted kind of bass thing. Um, I think like the Quake soundtrack might be... One example where, where that's uh, been used from uh, Trent Reznor, mm-hmm. um, there's probably some stuff in the Doom soundtrack as well. Um, there's there's times when like the whole song or part of the song is anti-phase to hide something. Yeah, if you play it in mono, there's a completely different song inside. Um, that can be fun. Oh, really?
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Links um, in the description? Yeah, I think I think we need to hear some of those examples. So one
1: example is from uh Drugstore Fanatics. I can't remember the name of the song, but it's the last one on their first album. Um and that has as yeah, just there's something inside, like, yeah, there's like sort of a weird sound in when you play the full thing, but if you mono it, it's like, oh, there's there's a hidden voice in there. So so Ooh. you can do some fun things with that. I can see how that can be difficult with um with vinyl mastering. But that's not really bass only. The main music is out of phase and then there's one thing that's that's there on its own in mono. Or maybe maybe I'm thinking of you have to listen to it side channel only. One of those. It's been a little while since I've looked at that, but artistic choice, creative, um, creative uses. Yeah, I, I think using as a way to create tension because it can be kind of an unnerving sound, um, to have sort of like extreme widths or like, um, atonal sorts of bass frequencies, um, combinations on the left and right can be, can be interesting.
0: How about you, Ian? Do you, is it something that you kind of hear a lot and appreciate or? Is it kind of you know sort of
2: more of an eye roll moment? I have heard instances of it that I I think are interesting and and neat. I I guess I would say they tend to be at least where I've heard them where I feel like they work kind of more experimental um, music. You know, in in a straight ahead pop or R and B or hip hop or you know EDM or whatever. Um, yeah, that's not going to happen there. Yeah, exactly. So there there I feel like they they work a little less well. Um, you know, but certainly if if you're doing something that's experimental to begin with, um, then yeah, I, I think there are some some cool opportunities. Personally, though, stuff that's overly wide makes. I think we talked about this in in the mid side stereo episode. It makes me feel weird. It kind of makes my head feel inside out. And uh, so, if that's something that you're going for, great, I guess. Um, but but personally, I, I there's actually. Um, a few clients that I have that every mix, I mean, a lot of times you think about widening things and mastering, right? Trying to get more spaciousness. And almost every mix I get, I'm narrowing it because it's just like too overly wide for me. Um, and it kind of, it just changes the presentation so drastically if you listen in mono on a phone or whatever. Um, so, yeah, for me, I, I find myself not not loving super wide stuff in general and especially super wide base just kind of uh, makes me feel like a, I'm in a black hole or something. Getting, getting. <laughs> yeah, I think I. I th- getting spaghettified, yeah.
1: It sounds weird. And uh, if someone is really skilled with it, they can use that to enhance a section. Um, I think probably Trent Reznor and his team can use that very effectively in certain spots. I think the fragile album has that all over their place. Cause just randomly I'll just get goosebumps and it's like, that was weird. And just some, suddenly it just jumps out of the speaker super wide. And then like, and then it, you know, it was narrow, like the, the normal width you expect a right. second the, later.
2: I, I think that the other thing to keep in mind though, that, you know, like, especially if you're trying to create music like that is that, the person listening has to have a pretty good playback system, especially if you're talking about low frequency stuff to get to get low frequency imaging to a point where you know you're actually gonna notice that stuff um you know if you're just listening on your laptop it's it's not gonna happen or a lot of you know today's kind of smart speaker, even if they have two speakers, they're
0: within three inches of each other, so it's effectively mono so. Yeah, that's a good point. There are examples even in rock and indie space where you get very extreme panning. Um and I mean one thing that pops straight into my head having mentioned, you know, Abbey Road and the Fairchild limiter is the the first stereo releases of the Beatles albums where, you know, the stuff was recorded on four-track tape. Um so there were only four pan positions that could be used in a mix. And quite a lot of those records have drums and bass on one side or the Actually, I'm saying that I can think of there's definitely one on Magical Mystery Tour that has bass all over on one side. So it'd be interesting to hear those on vinyl and see what happened. They probably, um, well, we're going to talk about the ways of dealing with this stuff in a minute. So they were probably processed to to make that easier for the the vinyl cut to, to deal with. One genre where I feel like I hear more of this stuff is kind of electronica or IDM, uh, whatever that stands for, uh, you know, or, or EDM. Um, you know, extreme bass sounds, and I mean, one Ian and I were recently just chatting about. Um, there's a new compilation of tunes by Burial that's just been released, and his stuff I always think has very wide stereo image, and that has a you know a big uh, exactly what you're saying, John. That feeling of unease um, It might be interesting to look at the the kind of the phase c- correlation of that, and just see whether that has actually super wide base or whether it just feels like it does because of the clever mixing um but one other thing i think to bear in mind or two more technical considerations one of those is just that everything these days is going to be streamed and lossy streaming codecs like mp3 aac uh, og vorbis all these things basically eat stereo width for breakfast you know they're they're designed to preserve as much of the musical signal as they can. And that means, you know, they're going to prioritize the musical meat of the signal, if you like, which often is panned towards the center of the image. Yeah, you know, in a traditional recording, you usually have bass, drums, vocals, um, and probably some guitars and stuff, all panned pretty close to the center. So a lot of that information is going into the mid signal. Um, and then stuff that is much less important for the musical integrity, if you like, is ambience and space, spaciousness, that 3D um, aspect to the sound which is something that personally I love it's one of the things I find most satisfying about stereo audio um, but you lose quite a bit of that even in a sort of a, an iTunes plus Plus, 256 kilobits per second stream so if you're doing this kind of stuff creatively I think it's worth bearing in mind that it may not translate as effectively when people listen in those ways and then the other technical thing that just kind of occurred to me is I think it's, it's not true that bass is not directional at all, but it's certainly true that low-frequency sounds, uh, our perception of the direction that low-frequency sounds come from is a lot less precise than for, say, the mid-range or especially the high frequencies. Um, and that's why in a home cinema situation, for example, it's not super crucial where you put the subwoofer that's going to be handling the kind of the low frequency rumble and the effects channel um, for, for the audio. Uh, I mean, it, I can always hear when the sub is off to the left or the right, even though that's something you're supposed to be able to do theoretically. So I personally, I prefer to have the, the sub somewhere in the middle of the room so it corresponds with the majority of the mono signal. But it's certainly much less sensitive. And I guess that means that combined with the fact that, as Ian says, people need decent quality monitoring to be able to pick up all of this these subtleties in some ways kind of putting a ton of creativity into the stereo image of your bass is almost getting you the least bang for the buck um you know you could probably leave all of the bass pan centrally and then just use that contrast of mid and side information much more dynamically in the mid range and the the top end and it would probably have much more of an impact for the majority um of listeners, if
2: if I can jump in for just a second, I have a, a few thoughts on a lot of what you just said. Um, so 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 first thing on on the the width thing and, and lossy encoders. I mean it. You know we're talking about bass and and monoing bass, um, but with lossy encoders, this is actually especially true for high frequencies, right? Because it, the way lossy encoders work, it's not. First of all, they don't work left, right. So there, a lot of them work kind of more like mid side. There are a lot of different techniques that are used, um, but they're also not time domain. So it's not like a waveform. They, right. They chop it into all these frequency bins. Um, so higher frequencies take up more bandwidth. So if you're asking the encoder to encode wide, high frequencies, it has a lot of trouble with that. Um, so that's, that's, I mean, you know, just kind of tangentially, um, that's certainly something to bear in mind if, if you're thinking about that. Um, uh, and then in regard to kind of directional low frequency, a lot of that I just, I, I don't know, I find this interesting, has to do with just the wavelengths, right? So a lot of how we perceive direction has to do with um, timing and phase differences between our ears. And so when the wavelengths are shorter than the distance between our ears. It's very easy for our brain to do that. But with base frequencies, which have these big, long wavelengths, that's why it becomes harder. Now, levels, certainly we can still pick up on, on those differences. And I think that's that becomes more of how we perceive direction uh, with lower frequencies. But, But that's kind of, I think, part of why that happens. And then the last thing I was going to say is... I think there's an opportunity rather than worrying about like, if you want to get creative with kind of bass width, um, just like you can, you know, add harmonics to a bass sound and make it sound bassier than it really might be. Um, you could play around with positioning and width of the harmonics, which may actually translate better to, you know, more band limited playback systems if someone doesn't have something that reproduces super low. Um, And you can still retain a lot of the effect of width, and and your brain is going to kind of tie those harmonics to the fundamental. So you could keep the fundamental of your bass, you know, more or less near the center, um, but still get some neat effects by kind of widening up or moving around some of the harmonics that are associated with it.
0: Yeah that that's actually a really interesting point. Um and a, a slightly extreme example that pops into my mind is it, it is a time that a low frequency driver on a set of monitors that we were using had actually blown. Um and it took hours for anybody to realize. Um even though, you know, the majority of the I guess the bottom octave of the sound, you know, the the really subby bass was only coming out of one speaker because the mid-range drivers and the The tweeters were still operating fine in these speakers. Our ears were using the directional cues from those frequency ranges as clues for our brains to figure out where the bass was coming from, right? right? So you could hear, you know, the the kind of the plucky, twangy sound of the the bass guitar strings playing, and that was coming out from both speakers as it was intended, so in the centre of the stereo image. Um, And it took us a while to notice that none of that really juicy low stuff was coming out of the left channel where where the driver had gone. So that's, you know, kind of a perfect example of what you're you're talking about there. Okay, cool. So lots and lots of reasons, um, well, why this stuff is important, why you might want to think about it, but why you can't necessarily just say, oh, mono the bass. Let's go back to that example uh, of the the Beatles tune where the bass guitar is literally only in one channel. If a vinyl cutting engineer is uh, provided with that, um, and thinks there's going to be an issue with cutting it cleanly. Ian, what is the main tool that they would use to help deal with that? And how does it work? Kind of the most common,
2: especially analog tool that you'd see on a lot of, you know, uh, like mastering consoles, transfer consoles, consoles for vinyl cutting. It's called an elliptical filter, which really, when you get down to it, is a high pass filter on the difference channel or the side channel. Um, and so by filtering out that, low frequency all it leaves is the mid channel which is left plus right so that kind of moves it to the center um so that's that's one way to
0: deal with it okay so you're, t- you're taking the base content out of the edges of the signal and only leaving it in the center right, exactly um there
2: are issues with that though which we can get into at, at some length if you want i don't know if you want to hold off on that um but but that's that's kind of historically the common way to do it you know like like we mentioned dynamic control of of mid and side independently is another way to to help manage that so it could be some combination of the two right you might not just crank up the elliptical filter to 200 hertz and call it a day you might you know move it to 60 or 80 hertz and also do some you know compression limiting on the side channel so that What's left there isn't isn't more dynamic than that vertical movement can handle.
0: okay, that's cool. yeah, so I think we should talk about the the problems or the potential problems with that approach, um, so that people because I mean you know you 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 listen to that and you think, well, that's a pretty good solution. I mean, I can imagine that if you did that, it might seem that the base level overall might appear to drop a little bit, so you might also compensate by putting a little bit more back into the mid. Um, to keep a similar overall tonal balance than you had to begin with um but yeah let's talk about the problems with that because then that kind of leads naturally into other solutions and why you might want to sure. think about them.
2: so yeah like like you said level is one thing that can happen and and the more extremely something is panned the more level you stand to lose when you remove it from the side channel um but Provided it is not in anti phase, right? That that it's in some combination of left and right, and it's got the same phase. So, you know, it's, um, basically in phase between the left and right channels, you can compensate for for that that loss by a boost in the mid channel, either with you know with a shelf or with a bell or whatever. Um, the to me the bigger problem that's that you can't really control is phase issues. So a high pass filter um, has some pretty extreme phase shift associated with it. Uh, Even the gentlest high pass filter that you can create, uh, which is 60 B per octave has at the cutoff frequency will have a 90 degree phase shift. As you get steeper, so you go up to 12 dB per octave or 18 or 24 or whatever, that phase shift increases, and eventually you can actually get a full 360 degrees of phase shift. Um, And the reason this is problematic is because stereo placement, so when you take a a stereo left-right signal and you encode it to mid-side, and then you do some stuff to it, you manipulate it somehow, and then you decode it back to stereo left, right. The phase relationship of mid to side um, is crucial in getting the same stereo placement out that you put in. So if you start manipulating phase, not only are you changing level, but you're changing position. Um, And in fact, the difference between left and right, so something in the left channel and something in the right channel, when you go to mid side is... 180 degrees of phase in the side channel. So if you're using a really steep filter, or not even really steep, you can use a 12 dB per octave filter that can generate 180 degrees of phase shift. All of a sudden, things that were in the right channel are on the left, and vice versa at your cutoff frequency. So you just kind of completely flip the stereo image and then it will revert back to normal
0: as that phase shift comes back to zero degrees. Um Okay, that's a lot. That's, that's really cool. But it's, re- <laughs> yeah, it's really hard to think about without, whenever I'm trying to explain this stuff to people, I start dr- uh, drawing pictures, but let's just see, I'm just trying to think that through. Kind of what we're saying is if, imagine we had a bass guitar on the left-hand side of the image and it was a pretty dull, didn't have much high mid kind of content in it to give us a clue where it was coming from. Sounds like if you used one of those filters in the way you just described, at a certain point. The, the notes would wander from the left-hand side of the image across to the right-hand side of the image, and then, I don't know, maybe even well, back again or into the middle, or it could get really yeah, unpredictable, so,
2: right? so actually I think an easier way to think about it is think about a distorted bass guitar, right? You know, a rock track, but for whatever reason, it's off on the left-hand side. So you've got a lot of low-end fundamental, really, you know, girthy bassy stuff, but then you've got all these harmonics and and higher frequency energy that's associated with that. And so you put mm-hmm. a minimum phase, high pass, on the side channel, on these elliptical type filters. And what it'll do if it's, if it's too steep, sure, it'll move all the low stuff back to the center. Great. But then as you approach the cutoff frequency, it's actually going to push it over into the right channel. And then it'll wander back across to the left as your phase approaches zero again. So it's when you're not Looking for that, you don't know that's going to happen. It's a dense mix. There's a lot going on. It's kind of easy to miss, but it's like the second you know about that and you actually start listening for that, um you'll you'll hear it. It's on tons of records because that type of filtering has been used a lot historically. Um, but yeah, it's one of those things that like as soon as you know to start listening to it, listening for it, it's you hear it
0: a lot and it's very strange sounding that's interesting okay so that's that's a problem immediate thought is how about if we didn't use something i mean because a low cut is a pretty extreme filter right right? it you know it it rolls off and everything below it pretty much disappears how about if we just use um a parametric or uh, a shelf that presumably has similar problems but not extreme right right? exactly
2: so the phase shift that's associated with like a shelf or a bell is much less extreme um than something associated with a like a high pass. So yeah, a, a low shelf on the side channel can be a great way of dealing with this if you know, you just sometimes dropping it 6 9 dB, that's enough to to move it back, you know, in closer and not be as wide um without having all these these crazy, you know, uh, phase shift issues. Um so that's certainly one way to approach it and and a lot of times that's
1: enough. There's not really a way to shift that without also affecting level right because if you take it down by by six to nine db then that's really going to change the mix
2: it'll it'll change the mix down low but again you could so you could then add a, a shelf boost on the mid channel and kind of recover some of that level oh i see Right. So you're moving it towards the center and then you're, you're boosting that. And, and the frequencies don't necessarily have to be the same too, right? Like that's, that's kind of one of the beauties of, of breaking it apart into to mid and side. So, sure. so maybe, maybe you find that like, okay, yeah, really down low to, you know, these, those low fundamentals on the low E string of the bass, you know, when the bass player goes down there that, okay, that's kind of getting a little lost. So, you know, your, your shelf that's boosting in the mid could be a little lower. Um, so you you can balance that. Where you kind of get into problems and where you can't do this is it's it's a much less common scenario, uh, but it does happen. It's happened to me uh, plenty of times. Um, is where you have a base signal that's in complete anti phase, and yeah, then you got to get creative.
1: Is that something like they've they've run run it through a chorus pedal or something like that, or?
2: A chorus or—I mean, honestly, I, I think there are a lot of, uh, like, soft synths that they just build that into the patch because it sounds—like, when you first pull up that patch and play a note, it sounds really seductive. You're like, oh, my God, that's so wide, that's so cool. But it literally—it's just, you know, the right channel is 180 degrees out of phase with the left channel. Um, and, yeah, you mono that, and it's, it's, you're, it's not going to be lower in
0: level. It's going to be gone, so— <laughs> So that's another problem before we – because there's some interesting uh, ideas to think about uh, in terms of how to deal with that to, to kind of preserve that out-of-phase content back in the center. I mean, it is a bit of a niche topic, but I think anybody who's got this far in the episode will probably be interested to, to hear a little bit more on it. But just before we talk about that, I guess the other thing is, you know, we were talking there about predominantly analog filters that in- cause this big shift in the phase. Um but these days you know working in digital we can use uh phase linear eq to do the the shelving or the cut or whatever is going to be the solution and that that gets rid of this problem at least of the phase cancellation not if the original signal is in anti-phase but uh in the kind of more normal situations that's why right,
2: isn't it right yeah if it, if 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 your signal is anywhere between you know hard left and hard right and not kind of outside of that uh yeah um linear phase kind of does solve that problem. Um, y- you know, there's no free lunch, right? So with linear phase, as you get steeper, you get potentially more pre-ringing, which at low frequencies can be a lot more noticeable. So it's still worth using kind of the least steep filter that you can get away with. A lot of times if if I need to do this for some reason, um, you know, I find myself using six or maybe 12 dB per octave. You know, I usually don't go beyond mm-hmm. that. Um, but I will use linear phase because that prevents that, that image wandering
1: due to phase shift. Is, is there a digital version of an elliptical filter or is that just a mid-side EQ or mid-side filter? It really is basically
2: just a, a high pass on the side channel. There are plug-in implementations that will specifically call it an elliptical filter, but yeah, really it's just a high pass on the side channel.
1: Okay. That's what I was thinking, but, like, I was wondering, like, because there's that phase shift, is that just because it's analog, but the same thing would happen with any minimum phase EQ.
2: Right. And actually, I did a really deep dive into this probably a couple years ago, at least at this point, um, and was kind of exploring as many of the analog options as I could find. And there's actually a guy named Wayne Kirkwood who makes an analog elliptical filter that is 12 dB per octave, And the way he's done it and gotten away with it is that he puts what's called an all pass filter after the high pass filter. And so, what an all pass filter does is it shifts phase without shifting, without affecting frequency. So, he's made something that has the frequency response of a 12 dB per octave uh, high pass. But has the phase response of a 60B per octave high pass, which is pretty neat. You lose channel separation like you would with any elliptical filter, but you get a steeper roll-off with basically the same amount of channel crosstalk.
0: Cool. Yeah, that's really interesting. And you you mentioned there about uh, that kind of unusual case where you, you actually have antiphase or near anti-phase base. Um, and the fact that in that case, it's going to disappear completely if you try and use any of these strategies. But I think I'm right in saying that there are actually some some clever plugin designs, especially that try and preserve that base content and bring it back into mono. Um, am I right about that? Maybe you can talk a little bit how they work.
2: Yeah, there's good news and there's bad news. There, there, is, there are ways to do it. The bad news is none of the commercial plugins out there that I found do it in a way that I would consider very good. Um, or, or, or at least in a way that where you, you know, you can't make more problems for yourself. So the first one is, and I think probably the, the best one at it is new gen monofilter, um, can do it, but it's, it's very easy to make the cutoff too steep just because of the way the graphical interface is designed. Um, you can think you're doing kind of a shallow thing and it's just you're transitioning over a, you know, like... 10 Hertz region. And it just creates all sorts of nasty pre-ringing. And it also does a thing where it prioritizes, uh, the polarity in what I would consider the wrong way. So you get this phase flip. So I don't know, you can do it. It does work, but it's, I, I didn't find myself liking the results I got from it very much. Um, another one is, uh, by NoiseBud, And this is actually, this wasn't in, in my article because I think I've discovered it, more recently or only played with it more recently. It's called leaky two. And it can do this, but the caveat with it is that it uses minimum phase filters. And I've I've talked to the developer and he said that he wants to implement uh, a linear phase at some point, but it's not there yet. Yeah, there's there's not there's not a great way to do it commercially. But all that said, you can, if you get kind of creative and clever with your routing, you can set up the process that you need to do to recover antiphase back to mono maybe not easily but with with a little bit of effort
0: so that was going to be my question is what is is the limitation of those plugins kind of a theoretical one is it something that's not possible to do uh in real time or is it just the way that they happen to be designed because i know you were looking into this and and had talked about maybe developing something that would that would do this yourself. I don't know how far yeah, you got so with that. Yeah, so
2: it it really is just the way they're designed. Um, so I have a, a technique that I use in my sessions that works and can do this. I've chatted with a plugin developer. There seems to be some interest, but it's moving uh, very slowly. So I'm not holding <laughs> my breath on it. Um, I would love it if it, it came out at some point. That would be cool. Um, but basically what you're doing... You're trying to turn side content into mid content, right? That's, that's like basically the goal mm-hmm. because we're, we're imagining the scenario where, where a sound, nominally a bass sound is like almost entirely just in the side channel. So you're trying to turn that back into mid information. And if you think about the difference between mid and side, mid is left plus right, side is left minus right. Basically what you can do is encode to MS. Create a crossover and then if you decode the output of your low frequency back to left right, but before you recombine it, you just invert the polarity of the right channel now it's mid the The only kind of problem with this is that it's it, i mean it is there is there is a technical limitation it's one of those places where there's just no free lunch um, you potentially lose information on one channel or the other, depending on whether you flip the polarity of the left or the right channel, which if you're trying to mono stuff, you know, probably not really a big problem, um, <laughs> but, but it's, it's something to be aware of. So, it, you know, so wh- when I do this, I kind of what I've ended up doing is um, there's a plugin called Meta Plugin by DDMF where you can create your own plug-in chain with parallel chains and crossovers and whatever and save it as a preset. So I have it set up in there. Um, and one of the things that I can do is just change which polar- channel uh, is getting polarity inverted um, and just see if it makes a difference to me in that case. Um, I mean, it's something that I use, you know, I, maybe one in every 20 masters, if that. So it's it's definitely a niche thing, but when you get that song where you mono it and the bass just disappears completely, uh, it is it is a good trick to be able to, you know,
0: pull out. Yeah, very cool. Um, we'll include a a link to your article in the show notes at themasteringshow.com for anybody listening to this who wants to dig into it in a bit more detail. Okay, well, I think we probably uh got a great deal of information out of that topic, possibly more than most people would sanely want to uh, listen to. But I mean, I think maybe we should kind of pull some kind of summary together. I want to return to the, the point that we began with. I mean, having done an entire podcast episode on it, it sounds a bit crazy to say it, but I'm not sure that this is as big a deal as lots of people think it is. You know, those, those posts that I see that we were talking about that I see on social media where people are saying, oh, you've, you must, you know, mono all the bass from 200 or some higher frequency. Those are basically wrong. You know, it's, there are, um, mastered signals, you know, f- finished productions that you might be completely happy with in a digital format that are going to be challenging to cut to vinyl or might not work as well as you might expect if they're played on a big system with a a huge mono subwoofer. um, but they're probably not as uh, big of a deal as most people kind of have the impression they are at this point, I think. You know, I I feel like this was something that never got talked about at all. And then as kind of conversations about sound online and everything got more interesting to people and more people got involved in them, these topics came up. And because they're quite complicated and hard to get your head around, they're one of those things that everybody talked about quite a lot and there were misunderstandings and big arguments. And it kind of almost has a, a bigger profile if you like, than it deserves. You know, same to with, I don't know, A to D converters yeah, there. or, dare I say it, dither. <laughs> <laughs> there it is. Um, uh, you know, all of these uh, kind of topics, I think in some ways the the harder it is to get your head around something, often the more it gets talked around, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's that important in terms of the final sound. Would you guys agree with that?
2: Yeah, I, I, I certainly would. I, there's sort of been this vinyl comeback, right, that kind of overlaps with the growth of things like, you know, Facebook groups and, uh, you know, internet forums and whatever. So it it was kind of this like confluence of, of, you know, scenarios where people are talking about vinyl. There's a place to talk about it. It's really easy for someone who doesn't actually have that much experience or know that much about the topic to say something and have it be widely disseminated. Um, so yeah, I, I mean, there's, you know, If you're looking for an authoritative source on this, for some reason you don't trust me or other Ian, Um, Scott (laughs) Hull, who, I mean, Scott's been cutting vinyl for, I don't know, you know, decades, probably before, yeah, since before I was born probably, and uh, wrote a, a great blog on it about a lot of vinyl myths, but that's one of the things he, you know, touches on, on, on just why it's not as big an issue as, as most people think. And, you know, an experienced cutting engineer can work with a surprising amount
0: of width in the low end. Yeah, absolutely. I, I have also seen, uh, I think, the same post by Scott. Um, really recommend it. We'll include that uh, in the show notes as well. Um, yeah, and I think the other kind of thing that I would say to summarise all of this really is y- you were saying, Ian, you probably used that kind of technique for g- getting a better result when you're trying to mono the bass, maybe in one in 20 masters, whereas the number of masters where I feel it necessary to, uh, to narrow the low end is, is very, very small. Now, I'm not working on a ton of EDM stuff. Maybe you're working on more stuff in that genre and that kind of skews it slightly. But uh, for me, often, if you just do what kind of feels musically right, that's going to work and kind of naturally translate into something that's not going to cause you a huge problem further down the line. Most records have the kick drum and the bass in the centre for a good reason, which is that it does sound a bit odd if they're not, you know, Uh if you panel your drums to the left, it's going to sound like you're trying to achieve a kind of 60s Beatles effect, whether, you, whether that was your intention or not. So, yeah, I mean, the vast majority of, of mixes have that more traditional layout, and, and that's because it works. You know, it kind of, it feels musically natural to us. Um, I don't know about you guys, but if I have something where there's something hard, I actually get this just with podcasts, especially if I'm using earbuds that have a good kind of block out a good amount of external noise you know, so that you don't, if you don't have that feeling of the natural ambience around you, and then you just have voices panned. I find myself wanting to kind of take one of the earbuds out and kind of clear my ear out because I feel like I'm going slightly deaf in one ear just because the guy's voice is panned slightly to the left. Yeah. (laughs) And I I find the same thing with music, you know, if there's things where the the stereo balance isn't right, I'm kind of, I don't know, I almost start leaning one way or the other to try and (laughs) balance it back or something. So I think, you know, going for what sounds good and natural is going to lead you naturally in that direction where you're probably in good shape. One interesting exception is um, hard-panned toms in drums. That's something that Scott mentions in his article, or one of the articles I, I read by him, that potentially could be an issue for a cutting engineer and they might want to deal with, which is a musical effect that I really love, a huge kind of left-to-right tom roll. Um, I'm a child of the 80s. Now, does that mean that I'm saying that EDM is not naturally musical? no. I mean, maybe is isn't, but no, I'm I'm not
2: really trying to say that. <laughs> but, uh, you know, you mentioned the Tom thing. I love that too. I know in the rare occasion where I'm mixing anymore, I love to do that. Um, luckily, with most formats these days, it's not a big issue. But yeah, if you're going to vinyl, you know, that, that ties back to what we were talking about, with that, you know, dynamic, big transients uh, that are predominantly left or right cause a, a big side excursion on vinyl and can, you know, pop the record out, but... In most cases these days, um, it's perfectly valid to be as creative as you want with this stuff as long as you know what the potential consequences are going to be if you're going to vinyl or, you know, whatever.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Which I think is a good place to leave it. The Mastering Maxim, be as creative as you like, but be aware of the consequences. (laughs) That's nice and simple. Listen, uh, thanks, Ian, so much for coming and helping out with that. I, I love hanging you on the show because it means I don't have to revise all of the technical details uh, in, <laughs> in detail of the things that I once knew or probably should know or have incorrectly remembered. So, Thanks for helping us out with this. Uh, my pleasure. It was a joy. Um, and yeah, anybody listening who would uh, want to, wants to dig into this in more detail, Ian kind of reviewed a ton of different plugins and, and explains in great detail in his uh, blog post how they do or don't do a good job of the stuff we've been talking about. We'll include the link to that in the show notes. Um, John, thanks for being here as always and for editing the episode. Yep, my pleasure. Good to have you here, Ian. Yeah, thank you. At least it's only two Ians. Ian and I were on uh, a Zoom call with another Ian this afternoon, so we had three Ians, which was almost impossible to navigate. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, thanks as always to Kaylee Law for letting us use his music and thanks for listening.